This is Taekwon Lewis. You're listening to Dash to the Draft on Sports Crunch. Welcome back to Sports Crunch with D. Crom, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, David Cromolo. This is the fourth edition of our Dash to the Draft Marathon, which will bring you seven episodes in an eight-day span. One of my favorite things to do during draft season is to determine if there are any rookie skill position players that can be the difference maker for my fantasy football team in both the short and long term. And the best resource to help you in that endeavor is Matt Waldman's Rookie Scouting Portfolio, or RSP as he likes to call it, which is 1,700 plus pages of original, in-depth content that will give you exactly what you need to dominate your league on a consistent basis. And a big reason why I know for a fact the RSP will give you such an edge is the fact that Matt's counsel is constantly sought by NFL front offices throughout the draft process. It is a pleasure to welcome Matt Wallman back to the program to discuss his recently released 2018 RSP. How are you, Matt? I'm doing well, David. Thank you. And I don't know if they're regularly consulting me, but uh, I certainly have some folks out there who are in the league who who have who who do get the book. So we'll put it that way. I don't know that that's a nice possibility that you mentioned there, but I, I don't know if that's as exactly like that. <laughs> well, thanks. Thank you for setting the record straight, Matt. And uh, let's uh, talk about this RSP. I've been skimming through it the past uh, couple days. And an amazing part of the RSP is that it goes against the grain of conventional wisdom compared to both on draft Twitter as well as within the NFL itself. You actually have Lamar Jackson as your second-ranked quarterback, and that is one spot higher than the guy I still expect to be the first overall pick in Sam Darnold. What makes you believe that Lamar Jackson will have a better impact in fantasy football and or real football than Sam Darnold? You know, it's a great question, and it really kind of goes down to the root of how the RSP works because the RSP is a two-part publication. So the first part that comes out April 1st, which what what you just discussed really well in the, in the intro, is that it's really a pre-draft evaluation of talent, who I think is most talented based on what I see on film and what I think is easily correctable for a player if they land in a decent situation to do that. So, you know, I don't give a lot of upside to these players. I try and reserve it to a certain amount. And then the post-draft is more about where they fit and how that's going to be determined. So when you look at quarterbacks, I always kind of joke that quarterbacks are kind of like the baby animals that are, you know, hatched in nature. And the NFL is basically the cruel environment of Mother Nature once they head out there and most of them don't come back. Because it's a, you know, it's a tough situation for quarterbacks due to fit, due to the fact that they don't really practice a really a, a great deal of development. They don't retain a lot of quarterbacks on their rosters. So they're usually behind the curve when it comes to development. And so when you look at Lamar Jackson, I see him as a guy that in a perfect world, you look at what his talent is about based on what he does on the field. And he should be a strong talent who should develop. And because when you look at what he does in the pocket, people think of him as a runner, but he really is one of the best, if not the best pocket player in this draft class. And what I mean by that isn't so much about accuracy as I mean about willingness to be able to stand in the pocket. And when the pocket creates, there's pressure in the pocket, he's able to move away with controlled steps. He has quiet feet, things that Jared Goff, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Russell Wilson, all possess, regardless of how mobile they are, 
they always seem to be in a controlled position to be able to deliver the ball once they move away. And they only move the amount of space that they need to move to make that throw, which allows them to make plays in rhythm. It allows them to keep their eyes downfield, and it usually enhances their accuracy. And when you look at Lamar Jackson outside of the drops that he had with his receivers, and you can see that he actually has a better adjusted completion percentage than what the, the just raw stat shows. And he has a really good idea of how to throw people open and to be able to throw to his receivers and protect them, even when he's under pressure. And he does it moving to his left, to his right, as well as just being able to slide, reset, and fire. So that's a hard thing to teach. The things that are easy to teach are the things that people really knock him for, which is that his footwork needs to be overhauled a little bit when he's not making three- and five-step drops, that it can be a little too close together. Otherwise, you know, he plays in a pro-style offense, and Bobby Petrino's offense, which was one of the better NFL-caliber type of offensive systems when he was, you know, in Jacksonville with Tom Coughlin back in the day, and still runs very, you know, has Lamar Jackson doing shifts and a lot of pre-snap checks that, you know, that are a little more complex than what he's given credit for, a lot more complex, actually. And so, you know, from my perspective, you have a guy with a decent arm, good accuracy, better than noted, great pocket presence. And then when there is opportunity to run and he waits till the last opportunity, he's a devastating runner. So when you put all that together, he looks like a terrific prospect. My concern is, is that the NFL, you can see is so dreadfully behind in how it views quarterbacks at times that you're still seeing from these old school you know, media types like Bill Polian, who, you know, was a terrific GM in his time and provides excellent analysis on ESPN. But when you look at guys like him and Charlie Casserly and guys who are over 50 years old, who've been in the league for 20, 30 years in a high capacity, they're giving the story they know, and they are the age of a lot of the people who are currently in those power structures in the NFL. So they think of players like Terry Bradshaw, Peyton Manning, Brett Favre, John Elway, and they look at those types of guys as quarterbacks. And they don't have, you know, they look at Lamar Jackson and they think Michael Vick. And they, or they think somebody else who is mobile and runs and that they have to put him into some sort of running offense. And coaches and GMs tend to have a little bit of a caricature of Lamar Jackson that isn't really fair to what Jackson is able to do. And if teams are trying to win in a hurry, it's very possible that Lamar Jackson could be fit into a situation where they're going to say, we're going to use you like Robert Griffin. We're going to use you like Colin Kaepernick. We're going to use you as a runner first and a thrower second. We're going to cut off half the field. We're not going to spend a lot of time developing you because we just want to win now. And your legs are good enough to help us win now. And your throwing can be a secondary type of thing. And then that risks him really getting the opportunity to develop on the level that every other quarterback gets to. And I promise you, if he gets the chance to sit behind a really strong veteran presence like a Phillip Rivers or a Drew Brees, he could be the best quarterback in this class. Oh, very, very interesting analysis there, Matt. And I completely agree. This uh, group think uh, that is dominating the older part of the NFL circles, uh, it tends to be skewed towards the traditional way of playing quarterback. Yes, it is a pocket passer league, but 
The notion that Lamar Jackson cannot develop into a pocket passer is absolutely ludicrous. And uh, let's talk about uh, your number four quarterback for a second in Baker Mayfield. Personally, Baker Mayfield is my favorite quarterback in this draft. His intangibles are off the charts, and his accuracy and ability to process the field are super advanced, especially for a quarterback coming out of a Big 12 spread offense. However... You have opened my eyes to the holes in his game, particularly his inability to stay in the pocket and beat man coverage. That said, it would be an absolute shock at this point if Baker Mayfield doesn't get picked by the New York Jets at three, a team that many have told me on this program that has an offensive scheme that is tailor-made for him. Do you share that view? And if so, how early of a pick would you be willing to spend on Baker Mayfield in a redraft league with keeper options? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that when you look at Baker Mayfield, he's a guy that if you get him into an offensive system that's fit towards what he does best, he can thrive. He can be a productive player. I I would link that to the same way that the Sean Watson was put into a Texan system where they really tailor made a lot of things, used a lot of concepts from Clemson and retrofit that to the quarterback, which is really what every team should try to do. They should aspire to that. But again, the old NFL mentality is generally the offensive coordinator got hired based on the success that he had with the offense that he learned or that that he was developed under. And he brings that and thinks that he has to be successful with what he brought to the table, meaning that he tries to force the players to fit within his system as opposed to try and retrofit the system to his players. And that's to me, that's not coaching as much as it is just saying, you know, I'm a I'm a brand name for a system, you know, and there's some coaching involved there, but it's not as challenging. And I also think it's just not the level of coaching you would expect from the NFL. So that said, if they do that with Baker Mayfield, that could work out very well. The, the questions I have with Mayfield, you know, the accuracy stats certainly sound good, and you can see where he is accurate on a number of types of throws, but there are a lot of NFL types of throws that he didn't make at Oklahoma. He didn't throw the post very well. And when you look at that, you look at some of his throws against tight man coverage, where he's going to see a lot more of in the league. That's where he may struggle, especially when he's going to deal with pressure, because when he faced really the only team that has a comparable NFL caliber defense in terms of just even approximating what the NFL can do was the University of Georgia. And when the second half, they said, we're going to plaster cornerbacks to your receivers and play man. And we're going to do a few semi-exotic looks and we're going to close off the edges of the pocket. Baker Mayfield absolutely struggled. He had difficulty being able to, you know, move around, set his reset and fire accurately. He doesn't have the great arm to throw that deep post. And that's a very popular throw in the NFL to try and set everything up, up off of the threat of throwing that. And if teams know that you can't throw that accurately, then you know they can feast on you and do a lot to kind of foil you. And that's the concern is, is he going to be able to develop to do that? Um, and then with that owning the pocket, it's something that wasn't just that happened in Georgia. It happened almost weekly. You could see evidence of that happening against Oklahoma State. You could see it against TCU. You could see the number against the number of teams, even when he had success, you could see moments where he, when he was forced you know, there was pressure coming up the middle or coming off the edges and he couldn't run outside. He'd still try to work out there and he'd end up throwing his lineman's blocks. You know, he kind of basically throws linemen under the bus. He would ruin their leverage trying to get away and create chaos. 
because he's won with chaos before. Now, there are a lot of players where that kind of happens with. So I don't think he's a bad player by any stretch of the imagination. I think that, again, he's capable of becoming a decent starter. And the Jets certainly... You know, you look at their offensive line and they played pretty well last year. They've got some promise with their ground game. Um, You know, they have a promising, you know, they have some promising receivers who can win after the catch. Um, Guys that weren't even, you know, on the field last year an awful lot like our Darius Stewart and Chad Hansen are interesting guys. Of course, Robbie Anderson had a Pro Bowl season. So if they can add a little more and get a good tight end and, retrofit this to be a spread style offense with some quick hitting looks that will certain things that will work in the NFL with a lot more bells and whistles to kind of force some pre-snap movement. I think he can do fine, but if they say you're going to do three step, five step, seven step from center, and you're going to have to stay in the pocket and win from the pocket. Good luck with that. I don't think he's quite good enough to do that at this stage. And he it may take him a little longer to adjust. I, I liken him to a player like Jeff Garcia, which is not something that people find as a, um, you know, they don't find that as a complimentary thing. But if you look at some of the years that Garcia had, he played at a high level. And if he played in a spread system, I think that he would have been pretty darn good in the NFL for a little bit while longer. He played in the West Coast system that, you know, was working from under center an awful lot. So, you know, I think that he's a guy that, when I look at quarterbacks, it's a strong running back class in fantasy football. I wouldn't draft him in a redraft league. I would probably wait for a free agency or if I wanted to really take a chance at the end, maybe in a deeper draft in, you know, 20 rounds or more, I might take him in a redraft league, you know, in the final two rounds, just as a flyer in dynasty leagues, you know, there'll be some people who may take him at the end of the first round, early second round, but there are more promising players at running back tops at tight end, you know, who I think in this real deep class of, you know, running backs, I would probably wait until the end of the second, early third round to look at Baker Mayfield and there'd be some quarterbacks I'd take ahead of him. But, you know, if you like him, if you think that he's, you know, it all depends on the fit. And if he fits with a team where it looks like that, you know, they're going to retrofit things for him and you like the way the offense is set up, especially the offensive line, I could see bumping him up a little bit more. It's just going to depend if he does indeed land with the Jets. Yes, and I also completely agree with the Jeff Garcia comparison, and I also see it as a cover because Jeff actually played at a very high level when he was with the Niners in the early 2000s when they still had uh, Terrell Owens and I believe Jerry Rice um, for a couple years. And Jeff, is uh, he was a stunningly accurate quarterback, very, very tough, but once uh, he lost those needed pieces around him, he needed to succeed. His play kind of fell off. So Mayfield is going to need the right people and right scheme around him. But I think he could be a longer version of what Jeff Garcia experienced in his career if all things uh, go right for Baker Mayfield. And now let's talk about the running back position. And this is a very deep running back class, as you alluded to. And another fascinating observation when I was glancing through your RSP was seeing that you have Nick Chubb as your number one ranked running back ahead of Saquon Barkley, whom many believe is the best overall prospect in this class, period. You said Chubb earned a slightly higher grade because of the, quote, decision-making aspect of vision. What makes vision one of the most, if not the most, important aspects of running back play? And how worrisome to you is Saquon Barkley's vision? Yeah, I'm not worried about Saquon Barkley's vision too much. It's just that Nick Chubbs is better. When you look at Saquon Barkley's vision, the issues that he has is that, like many backs who are extremely talented athletes, 
and are allowed to be used in a spread style format where he's not running downhill, but he's just kind of in a shotgun and working from a shotgun more often than, than anything else. He, you know, he has the opportunity to bounce things outside. And then in the NCAA FBS, you can usually get away with that a lot as a back of his caliber of athletic ability. So you're going to see him bounce a lot of plays outside and score long touchdowns. But I've been doing this for about 13 years plus, And, you know, I see guys like that year after year after year where everyone is all excited about them and how they're going to be the next best thing. And when they bounce things out too, you know, too often, they end up getting benched because what happens is in the NFL, there's going to be defensive tackles who are as quick as the running back is. And they're going to be able to run those guys down. They're much more disciplined. They're better athletes across the board. And it's harder to bounce a play outside. And especially, you have to have discipline at certain times in the NFL. It's kind of like the baseball player, the hitter who's a home run hitter, who takes wild cuts at at balls, at pitches where, you know, look, take the walk. You know, bleed the pitcher and make him use more pitches to try and, you know, try and work with him so that you can wear him down a little bit. Help your team out a little bit. You know, don't just be an easy out when you don't hit the big play. And I think that in the NFL, you see that you've seen this with C.J. Spiller or Lawrence Maroney early in his career. Jamal Charles had those issues. LaShawn McCoy had those issues early in his career. Reggie Bush battled with it for about a year and a half, two years. Guys who just... They they tried too hard to make that big play because they were leaned on to do that before, and some of them recovered and were able to realize that, look, you know, on third and two in a red zone situation, sometimes you need to try to get those two yards rather than bouncing outside, or a second and eight, get those three and make it a third and five instead of making it a third and 12 because you tried to reverse field or bounce it outside when it wasn't possible uh, and you put your team in a difficult situation. That's what happens in the NFL more often. So Barkley can, you know, hone that and kind of mature a little bit more. He's going to be just fine. He's my number two back and not by an off, you know, it's, it's a, by a very small margin compared to Chubb, you know, you know, way back in the day I had Adrian Peterson and Marshawn Lynch ranked, with Lynch slightly ahead of Adrian Peterson, even though, as I wrote about Peterson, he was a generational talent. One of the guys you think about when you talk about Walter Payton, Earl Campbell, Emmett Smith, LaDainian Tomlinson, he was going to be that next guy. But I felt like if you're going to just look at running backs across the board, because we're not ranking them for teams and how they fit. If you were going to say that, you know, Saquon Barkley is going to be in a passing oriented offense. It's going to use him a lot in the slot and do a lot of things that they did with Marshall Falk with the Rams. He'd be my number one back easily in a, in a fantasy football context. But if I'm going to look at the broad spectrum of what running backs do, and that includes the all important running between the tackles, Nick Chubb's a little bit better. He understands when to make the most of a play when the creases are tight or non-existent and to create in a mature way, even if it means a short gain or a short, short loss, but then when you look at his skills, you also have to understand that while he split time with Sony Michelle, he wasn't a bad receiver. It was just that Sony Michelle, when they look at splitting time with two backs and Michelle was a five-star recruit, that they were going to say, well, who does what better? Well, Nick Chubb's a better in-between-the-tackles runner. Sony Michelle was a slightly better receiver. So Michelle got most of the receiving looks after Chubb's freshman year where Chubb caught enough passes that you could look at his game and say he has no problem catching the ball. And then people worry about the injury. Well, you know, he came back from a three ligament injury tear as a, as a sophomore 
nine months later, had a 32-carry game against the um, North Carolina, who has a very strong set of, you know, group of athletes that they recruit every year. A lot of them go to the NFL as at least high-end athletes on defense. And, you know, when you carry it 32 times for over 200 yards and your final run is a 50-yard-plus touchdown where you beat a, a cornerback, nine months after that type of injury, your knee's okay. When you look at his combine and it was slightly, it was just slightly less as spectacular as Saquon Barkley's at similar weight, that's pretty good. And so, and so when you put all that together, I would rather have the back at the, you know, when I'm judging across bounds like this, who can run between the tackles and break t- arm tackles to his legs more often. And it shows more maturity early on, you know, but now if you said we're going to play a Ram style offense, we're going to use him the way the saints used Alvin Kamara. We're going to use him more like the Carolina Panthers use Christian McCaffrey. Then I'd say, no, I'll take, I'll take Saquon Barkley and be very happy about that. So it's not so much a knock on Barkley as it is that people are overemphasizing the injury that Nick Chubb had, and there's this myth that he's not as quick and not the same-looking guy. If he's not the same-looking guy, then I'll just put it to you this way. you know, Nick Chubb is the best running back prospect I've graded in the past five to six years, including Ezekiel Elliott and, and Todd Gurley, and I liked them an awful lot, and they were my two top backs at that time over the past five year period. But if the injury was not an issue and I don't think it was an issue, but if he was supposedly even better as a freshman and it was just because I think teams played fewer as a freshman, they were caught off guard. They weren't playing, you know, heavy boxes to stop him. Like they were every time he came on the field after his injury, because they knew what was up. I mean, they, they said before, you know, Todd Gurley got hurt and they were like, okay, we're going to put this freshman in. And he ran rough shot over teams playing seven, you know, six, seven man boxes and went nuts. And they didn't know what to expect from him. Then when he comes, you know, he comes back from his injury well, he and Sony Michelle are going to split time and have a committee look. Sony Michelle is going to be the passing down back most of the time or run some plays outside and with occasional looks inside. But when Nick Chubb was in the game, you knew he was getting the ball. So, you know, it's kind of it's kind of one of those deals where people emphasize the wrong things about him. And if they were right about Nick Chubb and said, oh, yeah, he was unbelievable as a freshman and he lost something as a senior, then Nick Chubb not only would have been the best back I've graded, you know, ever in the RSP, it would have been by a mile because he would have had to been like a Bo Jackson, like of talent as a um, athlete to match the expectations people try to state about him. So, you know, I'd say he's a pretty darn good back. Who's going to be even underrated as a second or third round pick. Very, very, very fascinating there, Matt. And uh, let's talk about another running back. Later on in this uh, running back chapter of the 2018 RSB, you have another fascinating ranking, and that is Justin Jackson from my next-door neighbor, Northwestern University, as your seventh-ranked running back. And one spot ahead of USC's Ronald Jones, who is expected to be an early pick on day two at the very latest, and two spots ahead of San Diego State's Rashad Penny, who will likely go day two as well. What makes you slightly higher on Jackson's long-term potential compared to that of Jones and Penny? Well, I think that when you look at Justin Jackson, he actually runs with slightly better power than those other two backs. Rashad Penny is a 220-pound back, but when you watch him run, he doesn't break a lot of tackles. doesn't break a lot of wraps or, or reaches for his legs, as many as that he should for his size. Penny's also not a great pass protector at this stage. So if he develops in those two ways, 
you know, he'll be a top five back. And he's a guy that I'd easily take. You know, he's better than he would have been a top five back in last year's class, the way I graded Richard Penny. And he was a guy that was barely inside my top 10. That should tell you how strong this class was. Ronald Jones, same thing. I mean, you know, he's a, he's a pretty good pass protector for his size. You know, I love his suddenness. I think that he's got good vision and he can catch the ball reasonably well. Um, But when I look at, when I look at Justin Jackson, I'm very intrigued, not only by his suddenness in terms of change of direction and, and acceleration, he has strong vision. He understands to take how to take it between the tackles, and he knows how to use his functional power. So, you know, people think of power and they go, oh, he's a powerful guy because he's 220 pounds. Well, if you don't know how to use your pads, if you don't know how to run with good lean, if you don't break arm tackles or reaches, then you're not that powerful. You're just big. You know, and there are a lot of big backs in the NFL who are fine as runners because of their speed and their vision and their agility who they can work downhill. And if they get a crease, they're going to derive momentum generated power. And that's really just kind of like, you know, if you have a six year old running down a hill and you're standing there and he's on a, you know, let's say he's not running down a hill, he's, he's on a wagon and he's like rolling down that hill and builds up enough momentum and he hits you, he's going to knock you down. You know, (laughs) he may not be powerful. That wagon may not be a big deal, but that momentum generated force due to that speed that he's collected is going to knock you down. But real power is really when you can get good leverage and pull through more wraps from a situation where you're not getting a lot of momentum downhill. And Justin Jackson can do that. He understands how to use the stiff arm to ward off defenders. He understands how to dip his pads ever so slightly to get away from contact or create angles where defenders look like they have direct direct shots and they end up with indirect shots. And he's able to work through that or avoid it altogether. And he's often one of the backs who is first to make contact. And that reminds me of Jamal Charles. Jamal Charles at Texas was always very good at this, and he did it really well at the NFL level, which is when he was encountering someone much bigger than him, he was good at being able to establish the first contact with a forearm or a dip and, and lower the pads and make that first strike and then spin off of it or duck under it or do something where he could slide away and that first strike set up his second move. And if you're the first to strike and the first to make the second move, you're going to win. And that's what Justin Jackson does a lot. He carried the ball, I think, over almost 1,300, you know, almost 1,300 touches in his career. And people always worry about wear and tear in fantasy football, but you got to understand that if a back doesn't get hurt and he has a high workload in college, that's a great thing. That's something that Adrian Peterson had. That's something Marshawn Lynch had. That's something that Cedric Benson and Ray Rice had. I just mentioned, you know, a variety of different size of backs there, you know, and Jamal Charles was one of them too. And so when you look at that, you know, if they don't have you know, nagging injuries. I'm not worried about the the major injury that puts them one year on the shelf. They come back and they're fine. And maybe they have to play through a minor injury because they're overcompensating due to the, they're still getting comfortable to the leg or something like that, like a Nick Chubb or a Frank Gore or somebody, you know, along those lines. I'm more worried about the guy who every year is missed two to four games or is completely struggling for a year, year and a half because he's had multiple injuries, you know, that he's dealing with. And it just seems like he can't stay healthy for an entire game and he gets, he takes a hit and things happen, you know, happen and he's, and he's not productive or not on the field. And Justin Jackson wasn't that guy. Justin Jackson was, you know, four years of 
you know, high-end production with a big workload against Big Ten teams. So he may be underrated. He may not get the chance to be in every down back because the NFL may pigeonhole him as a, as you know, a third down guy. But uh, I, I will be glad to take him as a mid to late round bargain in leagues and just wait and see. We shall wait and see indeed. Excellent analysis there as always, Matt. And let's talk about this uh, wide receiver class. And as far as those wide receivers are concerned, you have yet another outside the box, uh, number one at the position in your RSP, and that is Washington's Dante Pettis. What makes him stand out the most in one of the more underwhelming wide receiver classes we've seen in recent years? Yeah, it's an interesting thing because if we look at wide receivers as a whole and say that it's underwhelming, it's probably because we're expectant of the top receivers in the class to look like Julio Jones or A.J. Green or Des Bryant, someone who's tall, someone who's over 215 pounds, someone who runs a, a pretty at a pretty good rate or can break tackles or can win the ball in the air, and they have all of those traits together from a big school program. And if we look back really over the past three years, the best receivers that have come out over these past three years since that vaunted 2014 class, which by the way, Odell Beckham doesn't fit that category at all. Mike Evans did, but Odell Beckham didn't. And he, and I would argue he was the best receiver in that class. And I think most of the people would agree with that. But when you look at, you know, that overall, the, the classes after that, Juju Smith-Schuster is an extremely fast. He's more of a slot guy who can play outside. Michael Thomas is an extremely fast, more of a slot guy who can play outside. Cooper Cup ran a 4-7, but he was extremely quick kind of quick like Allen Robinson quick, but, you know, not the biggest guy, played the slot and a little bit on the outside. So you see a pattern there. And there's kind of a hybridization of slot receivers who can also play outside um, who are doing well because of these spread offenses starting to matriculate to the NFL. And that's something that when you look at this wide receiver class, there are a lot of players on that level. The best talents, in my opinion, are guys who can play the slot and also do some work outside. And when you look at Dante Pettis, he's a guy who mostly played outside opposite John Ross. And a lot of people will tell you if they've watched both over the years that they were a little more impressed with the technical acumen of Dante Pettis. He's a very good route runner who gets separation early. He has a variety of moves that are very well polished with his hands and his feet to get that early separation. He knows how to set up a defender efficiently with a little bit of a story based on where the defender's leverage is and to break into the open area. And he's got acrobatic skills as a pass catcher. He's very flexible, which helps him to work through physical play and work around it. He's good at, uh, you know, above the rim as a receiver, and he's excellent at the sideline being able to adjust and make those tight catches against the boundary and do it in acrobatic fashion, either on high or low throws. And then you have the fact that he, you know, he may not be the fastest guy, which is another reason why you won't see him atop a lot of people's boards because they value that 40 time at the combine. But when you look at him, you, you understand that this is a guy who understands where to find the open field, make the first man miss, breaks a lot of arm tackles in the open field. And he's a guy that broke Deshaun Jackson's Pac-10 touchdown record for special teams for returns. And so, you know, you're looking at this entire package and he reminds me of guys like, you know, in terms of athletic profiles, Marvin Jones, Brandon Lloyd, 
Donald Driver. Maybe none of them are like your classic primary receiver, but they can be the primary guy and have been the primary guy. And sometimes we're league leading type of receivers in terms of yardage or catches um, or combined, you know, stats that they will provide when they're dependent on in that capacity. And I think that Dante Pettis fits that realm of player. And it's going to be interesting to see where Dante Pettis ends up in a couple of weeks. And the first two wide receivers expected to go off the board in two weeks are Calvin Ridley and DJ Moore. You gave them the exact same grade, but you gave the tiebreaker to Calvin Ridley because of his slightly higher breadth of talent score. What traits in Ridley's game gave him the ever so slight edge over DJ Moore? Yeah, I mean, I think that for Ridley, it it came down to that he had a little bit more skill with separation and routes that was just slightly better. Um, so he was a little bit more refined of a technician. And that meant that he, you know, from a breadth of talent to me, breadth of talent and depth of talent, it's two ways that I score players and my depth of talent is how I really rank them. And then I use the breadth of talent as a tiebreaker because look at it this way. Think about a job. You know, if you're, you're hiring people for a job, say it's, you know, I don't know, you, you know, you could say, Oh, let's say a financial analyst, you know, you probably have a list of, you know, maybe 20 or 30 things that financial analysts do across the board. And you could generically list what those things are. That's more breadth of talent, the kind of bare minimums that you would expect from any type of position that hires a, that would require financial analysis. And then you and then you could hone in and say, well, how talented are they in each of these specific skill sets? That's more depth of talent to me. And and to me, you know, when you're hiring someone, if you're going to hire a financial analyst, you may not hire someone who has high level of skill at everything across the board, but they may have a certain industry specificity where they're really strong. And they also have strong enough skills in the basic areas that you're looking at that you're like, this person is going to be above you know, candidate B. So when you look at Calvin Ridley, that's kind of where he is, is that he's tied with Moore. But if, you know, if I knew where Moore was going to go, I'd love to have him. And I'd oftentimes take him over Ridley. But with Ridley, he's just a slightly, you know, right now in this generic sense, without getting to do a post-draft analysis of fit, you know, Ridley's slightly more appealing because of his broad base of skills are slightly better. Thank you very much for that explanation, Matt. And now let's talk about this tight end class for a minute. It is rare to see immediate starter level production from rookie tight ends. But however, we saw it last year with Evan Ingram, who posted 64 receptions for 722 yards and six touchdowns. Is there any 2018 rookie tight end that could come close to that stat line this year, such as Dallas Goddard, Mike Jasicki, or Hayden Hurst? Yeah, I mean, it's possible that all three of those guys could do that. Is it likely? Probably not, because when we look at Evan Ingram, I don't think it would have happened without the injuries to Beckham with the Shepard and the issues along the offensive line where they had to split Evan Ingram outside more often and use him effectively as a receiver and more of a move tight end than what they were doing earlier in the year. Now, you could maybe make the counter argument that they were eventually going to do that anyway, but I honestly think it was more push comes to shove. And Ingram was certainly a terrific talent. He was a high ranking. I I graded him both as a tight end and a receiver, and he could have easily been a top five receiver in last year's class, just as a wide receiver, not as a tight end. So, you know, they, they used him in a, in a very strong capacity, kind of a Shannon Sharp-esque type of thing. And that worked out well for him. The, the thing is, is that unless the same situation happens for any of these three tight ends, you just mentioned, it's probably not going to occur 
in 2018. The one who has the best chance to do it based on the fact that a team's going to draft him to be a receiver and not rely on him to block right now at all is Mike Jacecki. Just simply because you look at his, his career at Penn State, and he's not much of a blocker, and he's and he's more of a guy who's going to be a move tight end in a Kobe Fleener type of way. And so when you look at him from that perspective, teams may just say, look, we're not using him as such, and we're going to retrofit him to our offense, and that'll work out well. And if that happens, then good. But I expect that most teams will draft their tight ends and say it's going to take a couple of years because blocking is so difficult at the NFL level for tight ends. It's just, you know, even if they're good blockers in the college level like Travis Kelsey, it usually takes a little bit of time for them to really acclimate fully and handle these, you know, defensive ends and outside linebackers and even safeties. You know, so you look at it from that standpoint, and I'd say long term, you know, Hayden Hurst and and Dallas Goddard have the best chance to be all around tight ends. Goddard could also fill into that kind of, you know, we're going to use him and fit him as a move tight end and as a receiver, like, you know, you know, like maybe Jacecki might get that opportunity. But teams will look at his blocking and say they will probably find him appealing enough that they're not going to do anything special with him and maybe fit him behind a player who's more capable of doing everything all around. And then I think with Hurst, he's kind of a Hunter Henry type of guy. So maybe if he lands with a team that wants to use two tight ends, he might get the benefit of you know being the open guy all the time, the way that Hayden, you know that. Hunter Henry was in his first year. So if they either land in two tight end offenses with a really strong first tight end, or they're fitted in, you know, specific to their skill sets and minimizing the, the exposure to their weaknesses, they could do well. But I'm not sold on that happening right now. Professor Waldman, I enjoyed your lecture today. Fascinating, in-depth, and original, outside the box as always, Matt. It's always a pleasure having you on this program. But before we let you go, we're going to play the game we love to play the most on this program. It is called Buy or Sell. And I'm just going to say the name of a prospect that we haven't talked about yet. And you will tell us whether you buy or you sell their fantasy stock, whether in two to three years they will become rosterable and startable fantasy options. Starting with Kyle Lawletta, a quarterback that has been climbing up draft boards since the Senior Bowl. I'd buy certainly quiet feet in the pocket, mobile, decent arm, heady player. Definitely buy. Uh, Mike White, another guy we saw down in Mobile from Western Kentucky. I'd buy because he's probably going to be, he may be drafted earlier than we expect, but probably not be expected to start right away. So that gives him a little bit of time and you might be able to sell him at a profit, but it's more of a speculation buy. Uh, Eric Alco really loves this guy, Naheem Hines from North Carolina State. PPR leagues, I'd buy. Standard leagues, I'd, I'd sell. Uh, yes, uh, no wonder he has been compared to a Giovanni Bernard type back, and those are much more feasible in PPR leagues. Uh, Chase Edmonds from Fordham, buy or sell? I'd buy. I think this is a guy who runs well between the tackles um, and can give you a little bit of everything as a player. And I actually like him on more of that that positive end of Giovanni Bernard. Whereas I look at Naeem Hines and I see him more as a Chris Thompson type, which I like Chris Thompson, but you know, I see him more in that vein, which is more PPR dependent. One of the MVPs of the senior bowl game and a guy who stood out to me in practices all week was DJ Chark buy or sell. I'm selling. I, um, I love the fact that he's fast. I think he can catch the ball reasonably well with his hands, um, but route running needs some work. I think that his hand position against more difficult types of 
targets is going to be a struggle for him early on, and it may take him two to three years to develop. So I guess if you're, you know, for me, that's more garden variety. If it were just as an NFL vertical threat, I'd buy. If it were as a fantasy guy, well, you know, unless you're in a DFS league and you're getting Ted Ginn for pennies on the dollar, I'd sell. Another standout from Senior Bowl week, Deshaun Hamilton, buy or sell? Buy. The guy's automatic within the first 20 yards of the line of scrimmage. He can play inside and outside. He's he's kind of along the lines of a Cooper Cup type of player, and he'll do very well in spread offense. Ian Thomas, the tight end from Indiana, buy or sell? I'd buy because you're probably going to get him late. He's a nice athlete who catches the ball reasonably well. Um, it's more of a speculative one, kind of like Mike White. I wouldn't expect much from him, but the talent is there to develop, so why not take a shot, especially at that low price? And last but not least, uh, one of the most versatile chess pieces in this class, Jalen Samuels, buy or sell? <laughs> He's going to be a buy for me personally because I like his game and I think that he can be you know if a team uses him right he's probably he could be what James Casey should have been the rice utility player who was with the Texans and the Broncos and the Eagles who never really hit but offered great moments so I would say for me personally I'm going to buy but for everyone else I'm going to recommend sell Matt Wallman, ladies and gentlemen, author of the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. You can download it at mattwallmanrsp.com. You could also catch his work at footballguys.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Matt Wallman. Matt, it is always a pleasure having you on the show. But uh, before we let you go here, we want to give you a little bit of opportunity to promote the RSP. There's some great uh, causes that the money that uh, you raise from it will go to. Yeah, thank you very much, David, and, and and it's always a pleasure being you know being on the show with you, and you know I I enjoy I enjoy kind of the quick hitting back and forth that we do with some of this stuff. Um, you know, the RSP is a is a two part draft guide. So you, as I mentioned earlier in the program, you get a pre draft, which has kind of a three to five year shelf life for dynasty owners and redraft owners, because a lot of people tend to play redraft like a dynasty league and discard second and third round picks after a year when they don't pan out right away. And then they do two to three years later and you get a chance to read about these guys in depth. So, you know, everything's bookmarked for you. It's really a 430 page draft guide that you're going to mostly read that just shows all its work. It has a glossary. Everything's defined, kind of gives you all the grading checklist reports that I show just so that you understand what my process looks like. And then the post draft comes out a week, no later than a week after the NFL draft. I email everybody and let them know when it's going to be available for them to log in and download. And that's about a, you know, about 180, 200 page draft guide that gives them a cheat sheet that kind of marries my rankings with average draft position and helps you find the sweet spot to find the values with them. So that when you look at some of my rankings and go, whoa, my goodness, he's got Dante Pettis number one, and he's probably going in the fourth round in dynasty leagues. Should I be picking him number one, you know, as the top receiver? And I show you where that sweet spot is so that you're not just, you know, picking guys based on a ranking. It's not, you know, I kind of help you choose your adventure here and arm you with information. And, you know, once you sign up for the RSP, which is 2195, um, you also get put on an email list that I'm going to send out a, um, a newsletter this year from June through December once a month that's going to cover my updated thoughts on some of these rookies as camp goes along. A lot of it might be me going, cautioning people to be patient with guys, um, but there will be things with developments that I'll talk about as well as previews to some of the 2019 class. And as David alluded to, 10% of every sale since 2012 goes to darkness to light. 
And that's an organization that is a charitable group that trains individuals, communities, municipal groups, athletic departments, colleges on how to prevent sexual abuse of children. So they they take them to training programs and help them see warning signs so that they can thwart that before it happens and also help them understand the dynamics of abuse in terms of individuals as well as systems of government and systems of business so that when it does happen, you know, even though they'd like to be able to prevent it altogether, when it does happen, to be able to address it in a way so that they don't that they don't unintentionally do further harm to the victims. Because that's usually often the, the biggest problem is the compounding of of trauma that happens to victims because of how organizations have handled this in the past. So, you know, this is something I was inspired to do for a variety of reasons, but among them was, you know, what happened at Penn State and what we saw as the fallout with all of that. And so, you know, 10% of that goes to, to that cause. And, you know, it's a wonderful way to feel like that you're enjoying football, but you're doing something constructive at the same time. Matt Wallman, thank you very much once again. We hope to have you back on in the very near future. Hey, man, you just let me know. Thanks so much, David. You're very welcome, Matt. And that's it for today here on Sports Crunch with DCROM. Stay tuned for the remainder of our Dash to the Draft extravaganza, which will involve the completion of our division-by-division draft previews. Also, be sure to check out the episode archive, including our 100th episode special, my interview with longtime NFL scout Greg Gabriel, as well as an up-to-date blog of mine at sportscrunch.com. And remember, that is Crunch with a K. And if you enjoy these podcast episodes, please consider leaving us an iTunes review and donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash sports crunch so we can improve our itunes ranking and afford to produce even more shows with awesome guests like matt waldman especially since there's never an off-season for talking football for matt waldman our producer chris broadhead this is david cromelo saying so long and as always stay awesome